Well, it is certainly good to be with you all this morning and our, our, uh, our friends joining us once again this morning. So Luke chapter 18 is where we are, starting in verse 18. Uh, so just kind of be there. We're going we're gonna to camp out there on that passage. Uh, and if you look, go ahead and look at the subtitle there in your Bible, you'll, you'll see that it is the story or the, the, the passage of the, the rich ruler, the rich young ruler, uh, as so many like to say. Um, the rich, the young, and the ruling uh, class. Um, it's also in Matthew and Mark. You'll find it in, in those two, two books. I believe it's Matthew 19 and Luke chapter 10, if you want to look there. They're actually quite uh, similar in, 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 in how they are written and, and the actual content that's in them. Um, I think it is, what is it, Mark? No, Matthew. Matthew is the one that tells us that it's a young man, and Luke is the one that tells us it's a... Um, um, that it is a ruler, that he's a ruler, and all three of them say that he is, that he is rich, has extravagant riches. Um, so just to give you the differences in some of those, and there's a few other things too if you go back in and, and take a look. Now, we, we started out last week by looking at chapter 18 as a, as a whole to see um, what the theme that, that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us and, and, and teach us. Um, he wants us to know how one gets into the right way of getting into the kingdom of God. And so these three passages are lined up consecutively to show us that, uh, show us that truth. So in verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells a parable because there are those who are around them who trusted in themselves um, that they were righteous and, and they, they're in their self-righteousness, they begin to treat others with contempt. So he tells a story or a parable about this Pharisee who goes to the temple and pray. And this Pharisee, when he, he prays very confidently of his own status and his own position before God, that there is no one else around him who can stand in that confidence like he can. And he goes and lists off this, the, the list of righteousness of, of those things. And then he thanks God for those things, for those works, for that righteousness. And the, the shock of the story was really the second guy. The second guy was the tax collector. The tax collector being a, a great sinner that everybody can identify. Tax collector, sinner. Nobody wanted to be around this guy. And this guy comes with no status, no confidence, except for the mercy of God alone, and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, his confidence is not of his own, but his confidence is only in the mercy of God, in God himself. And Jesus says, which of the two do you think went home justified that day? And Jesus shocks everybody and says, it was the tax collector who went home right before God that day. Because his confidence was not in himself. His righteousness was not in himself, but in God. So this is the, the picture in which Jesus is painting there in those first verses. That anyone who comes into the kingdom of God only comes through the work of God. The mercy and grace of God. And that's what Jesus is saying. So last week, the second passage we covered was verses 15 through 17. A short passage which was about parents bringing their their children, their infants, which we have both of those here this morning, right? 
uh, uh, in my family, actually, and everyone else. But children and infants being brought to, to Jesus, and after a while, the, the disciples, either it was too much or not, they begin to just kind of rebuke them and just say, okay, that's, that's enough, uh, we can do this another day, here's your rain check, we'll do it later. Uh, and Jesus actually rebukes the disciples and says, no, let them, let them come, and he calls them to himself. And here's what he's saying here to us uh, in, in this theme of how to come into the kingdom. He says, only those who come like a child, who come being like a child, meaning in their helpless dependence. Man, they just need everything. Parents, we know that. Children just need everything. They have a helpless dependence whether they know it or not. They must come receiving the kingdom like a child with, with that trust, with that humility, with that receptivity and love, which we all put those together and we called that faith last week. We receive the kingdom of God like a child in faith. Now, the reason why children make a good image of the kingdom of God is because their abundant helplessness and their abundant unworthiness. They're kids. They, they, they can bring nothing to the table. Like I said last week, the only thing bring they, they bring to the table is dirty hands and dirty faces. They need to be cleaned. And the connection with the tax collector here is the, what they have in common is their unworthiness and helplessness to justify themselves. So putting it together, we have more in common as Christians. If you're a Christian, you have, we have more in common with the tax collector and children than we do with the others in the passage, than with the Pharisees. And our passage this morning continues to show us how and what it means to enter into the kingdom of God, and, and even those, those barriers and those things that keep us from the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 18 together, and we will read it. Verse 18, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one last thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. But when he heard these things, or he says, and come follow me. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had, he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Now the question that the ruler comes up to Jesus with is a wonderful question. It is a wonderful question. It, it's, it's hard to think of another question that is that good than that. And how delighted most of us would be if someone came up to us and asked us, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Well, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for a long time now. But you might remember that back in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, that this same question has already been posed to Jesus. You can turn back if you would like to. But it was a, a lawyer who came up to Jesus and asked this question. I, uh, someone who dealt with the intricacies of the, of the law of the Old Testament. But he stood up to test Jesus, to the trick Jesus. And he asks him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question, great question. And if you see back in chapter 10, and if you don't want to, you can just trust me on this, Jesus almost answers the question exactly the same way that he answers the question for the rich young ruler. And the same thing, the lawyer implies, I've, I've kept these laws, these, the commandments of God. In fact, actually, Jesus answers with the, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And he says, I've kept all those. And Jesus then answers the him or corrects him and goes after his heart by, by giving us the parable of the good Samaritan. By answering the question, then, who is my neighbor? The second of the, of the greatest commandments. But also, by, by giving this parable of the, the good Samaritan, Jesus exposes the great blindness of this lawyer. The blindness of this lawyer who to himself is already fulfilling the law, is already good enough to inherit eternal life, and in himself is satisfied with his own self-righteousness. And Jesus telling the parable of the, of the good Samaritan exposes how he is not fulfilling the law, how he is totally blind to the fact and helpless to his own justification. So same question that the rich young ruler comes at, at this morning, but I, I think with a different intent. I think he comes with a, with, a, with a different intent. He's not there to trick Jesus or to test him. I think he's honestly wanting to know, what else do I have to do? I, I've done all these things. I, I, I feel confident in these things, but there's just something not right. And so Jesus answers for him. It's a good question. But despite the good man's intentions, Jesus tells us in our passage that not just the rich young ruler or the young man's intentions in his own abilities, not just his, but in what he's conveying to us this morning that in 
all of man's abilities, it is impossible to come to God. That it is impossible by man's own ability in of themselves to come to God. And so I want to show you three things uh, we get there and... um, and you can make fun of my outline later, but impossible self-evaluation, impossible salvation, and impossible sacrifice are the three points I'm going to make this morning. Impossible self-evaluation, impossible salvation, and impossible sacrifice. So first I want you to see man's impossible self-evaluation of himself and and how Jesus zeroes in on this guy's self-evaluation and just blows it up. And just pokes massive holes in it that man's own self-evaluation is impossible. The ruler considers himself to be a, a good person, godly, righteous. And Jesus wants him to be aware, to be more self-aware in how wrong he is. So verse 18, he greets Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And 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 Jesus zeroes in right at that first phrase, good teacher, respectable greeting. This this should tell us what what the young man thought of Jesus, and and even to bring such an important question to him. But Jesus replies and responds back right at that first phrase, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Yeah, Jesus is being confrontational. Not angry, but confrontational. And I'm going to get to the point, we'll get to it, show you why. Jesus is not denying his own goodness here. He's not denying his own perfect righteousness and holiness and his divinity and how he has perfectly held to the law. But what he is doing is he is setting the standard for the young man, and for us, what really good is. No, here's the standard, bro, of what goodness is, because you're going to need that standard when we get to the test. The standard is God. Who's really good? Who's the only one with real righteousness here? God. The The standard by which everyone will be judged will be by God's standard of righteousness and holiness and goodness. And that standard then sets before us that if anyone is going to be saved, it is not by your goodness and by your standard, but only by God's standard alone. In His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. And that's why he goes straight to the commandments. Jesus isn't laying out works salvation here. He goes straight to the commandments. In fact, if you look at it, he he goes to the moral law. He he skips the first four commandments and goes right to that that, that, uh, horizontal law, right? The one that deals with how we deal with each other, that, that moral law. Uh, and, and he's pretty much asking, hey, how are you doing with these things, right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Right? So the second part of the, of the Ten Commandments. 
And, and I think without hesitation, he, he just answers, yeah, I, I've done all of those. In fact, I, I kind of wonder if he kind of cuts Jesus off and Jesus doesn't even get to the 10th commandment. And he's just like, yeah, I've done them all. I know them. I've been there. I've done it, Jesus. So think about this. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, I want you to answer my question. We remember the question. And Jesus says quickly, there's no one good but God. And then he asks him, have you kept all the commandments? And what is his answer? Yes, I'm good. How does he evaluate himself? He evaluates himself as, I am the good one here. That's his response. Even though Jesus just said, no one is good. No one is good. And yet in his own self-evaluation, he says, I'm good. Jesus drew out real quickly what this man thinks of himself. That he's a good person. That he's a good commandment keeper. And that he is the kind of person that who is worthy to inherit eternal life. The man has a poor, a poor evaluation of himself. Oh, how highly we think of ourselves. Oh, how easy it is for us to, to think of ourselves so, so highly and that we are the ones who deserve eternal life and salvation, and we deserve the blessings and the goodness of, 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 of God. And yet, what Jesus is showing is, is this, that's a, just a disillusionment. You deserve nothing. No one is good except God. But how in the heart of man, in our fallenness, we, we, we try to suppress the truth and always consider ourselves better than what we really are. And maybe that's why so many do not come like a tax collector. And who do not come like a child. And receive like a child. Because we seem so much that we're better than what we really are. But this is where we need, we need the Word of God. And we need the Holy Spirit. Because it's in those things that are so necessary to, to cut right to the heart, right? This is what Hebrews tells us, that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword, and it's ready to cut and separate the bone from the marrow. That doing good things and not doing bad things according to this world and your values and your virtues and your morality according to this world does not mean that we are good before God. Only God, only Christ himself and Holy Spirit are good. And the only way we have any goodness, any righteousness, any holiness, is a righteousness and holiness that is outside of us and that comes to us by grace. It's imparted to us. It's imputed to us and given to us by Christ. The evaluation, the self-evaluation of the man is poor, isn't it? And Jesus exposes it really quickly. 
He exposes it really quickly because then he asks another question, or he actually gives them a command. It's a very simple test. It's very black and white. I mean, it's very clear on what this guy is to go do. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Bing, bang, boom. A, B, C. You're a good rule follower. Man, you can do these things. You're good in yourself. You can go do these things. But what does Jesus show? He shows that his satisfaction and his joy and his desire and his intent is more set on his things and his money and his stuff and himself than in God himself. And what Jesus pokes out here is his idolatry and actually the breaking of the first three commandments. You don't love God, you love your money. You love your houses and you love your wealth and you love your privilege. That's what you love, that's what you desire. And Jesus is just pointing out, you're not as good as you think you are. You haven't kept my commandments. You have a huge idol in your life. And he points it out with this command to sell it all. And this isn't a universal commandment. This isn't a, the, the one thing we must do to, to follow Jesus. But if that is your idol, then absolutely. But for anyone to follow Jesus, then we must want the kingdom to the point that we would lose everything in order to gain it. This is what Jesus places on this man. This is a put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. You want the kingdom? You want eternal life? Prove it. And no matter how much he thinks he's got it all together and he's the commandment keeper, and no matter how much everyone else thinks or thought that he had it all together, he doesn't. He's an idolater. He worships his money. He worships his, his stuff. And what happens? He goes away very sad. And why? Because he was extremely rich. You know, it never feels good when our idols are exposed. We'll either get defensive or we'll run. The human heart is an idol factory. We will turn the very good things into idols. And, and Jesus just exposed this guy and his idols. And he's sad because the truth of how he knows he loves his money more than he loves God, and in this case, it's going to lead to his own destruction. Our own self-evaluation can be quite off from the truth. We can be quite blind to those, to those idols. You know, when I was in school, I, I never liked it when a teacher said, okay, class, you're done with your project or your work. Now I want you to tell me what you think your grade's going to be. First of all, I was kind of a smart aleck and says, hey, you're going to pay me because that's your job. Sorry. Right? That's your job. But I never liked it because I was like, how, 
It's not how do you self-evaluate, but the problem is, and I think that's maybe what the teachers are getting at, is you're always going to want to grade yourself higher than what maybe you really deserve. And I kind of thought that, and then I would always kind of shoot myself under, and my te teacher would say, hey, I thought you actually did better than that, but that's the grade you picked. Those, those are the kind of teachers I ended up with. The self-evaluation of ourselves is hard. And we always self-evaluate really poorly. Now, this is a sad story. Because this story isn't just something that's been isolated. It's not something that just happened once. But how many have turned to, from Christ? Either maybe we've seen walk away or just rejected the gospel altogether because of the idols and the chains that are weighing them down. We don't want to trust our own self-evaluation self of ourselves. And unless it is in the standards that Jesus has given to us and the standards by which the word of God has given to us, that no one is good except God, that no one has kept the law except Jesus himself, this is a sad part of the story, but it gets better. Let's move on. The second point I want you to see after seeing the impossible self-evaluation is impossible salvation. Excuse me, salvation. And, and this impossibility is man's own ability to save themselves. We think that we can evaluate ourselves before God, but we can't. We need the Word. We need the Holy Spirit to evaluate us. We need the gospel to uh, evaluate us. But, but let's go back to that text. Look at verse 24. The young man is not the only one who's saddened, but it seems here that, that Jesus was also saddened from the conversation. Jesus feels compassion for this man who walks away from the, the greatest treasure, the, greatest, the, the great feast and the greatest joy and the, the only peace ever. And he trades all of that for things that moth and rust and, and, and thieves can steal, things that are corruptible, things that can be broken for money and for wealth, the things of this world, all things that will eventually pass away. Maybe if you've ever shared the gospel with someone, you've prayed for them, you've hoped for them that they would turn from their sin and from their worldliness and turn to Christ, and yet they reject. In small part, we know how Jesus feels here. But notice one thing. I've always found this interesting. But notice how Jesus does not go running after this man. And he doesn't run after this man and, and bend holiness. And he doesn't bend the law of God in order to love. There are false teachers who will continually say that real love says it does not matter who they are and what they do. And that's garbage. That's not the love that Jesus showed this man. The love that Jesus showed this man was getting right to the heart. 
getting right to the heart and calls him to repent and to forego of those, those idols. Letting someone continue in an idolatrous lifestyle and telling them that they are right with God is not love. And Jesus instead says in verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Now we've seen this idea throughout Luke. The idea of the, the great obstacle that wealth can have and money and riches can have in entering into the kingdom of God. And the reason is, is because when we have a, a lot of it, when we have the kind of abundance, that, to be honest with you, that all of us really have, it, it leads us to not, to, to not trust in God, but to trust in, in those things and to love those things more and to love those things more than what God can give us. It, it tricks us and it kind of gives those false evaluations of ourselves. And that's why Jesus says it's just impossible. It's, an, it's impossible. That's the example of the, the camel going through an eye of a needle. So, so think about the big clod-hopping camel that we see at the, uh, what are those things called? The, the, the live nativity scenes that we've, a lot of us bent as big clod-hoppers and going through the eye of a needle. So I can't even put a thread through a, a needle, much less the impossibility of a camel. That's what Jesus wants. It's It's impossible. It's impossible for anyone to be rich enough. It's impossible for anyone to be good enough to inherit, to earn, to gain eternal life or salvation by any of their own merits, morals, virtues, money, anything. Jesus says it is impossible. Not just for the rich man, but for all. And that's why everyone around him, you see it in verse 26, and those around him, they were, again, shocked. Shocked. Because if the rich guy who's young and wealthy and morally upright, holds the commandments before everybody, has a, a high position in society, probably liked and, and, and loved by all, certainly not like the tax collectors and the unimportant children like we saw before. And, and if, if he's not good enough to get saved, then brothers and sisters, what hope does any of us have? If, if, if he has not done enough to inherit eternal life, what hope do any of us have? Now, I know this doesn't shock anyone, any one of us. Because most of us do have a sense of the gospel and grace and mercy. But when they came to Jesus, they came with this assumption and expectation and with a, a worldview. A worldview that if he was these things and that great, then certainly he would be a candidate. And if he's lost and, and he has no inheritance and no righteousness in God, then then what do I got? Then what do I got? We may not come with those same expectations as the people do, but we do come with our own thoughts, don't we? We do come with our own ideologies. We do come with our own upbringing and virtues and morals before God. And it just seems like that everywhere we go the, in the Bible, the, the Scripture is always correcting a lot of those 
turning those things upside down. And this is why we need the gospel. We need the word of God to shape us and to change us and to to bear on us and to press on us so that we are not pressing those things on the word of God and then on others. And so they saw their doom. They saw their doom. They saw salvation as impossible. And and it, and it seems like that Jesus is just agreeing with them. There's a big but here. What's impossible for man to achieve or gain salvation, to be perfectly obedient to the commands of God or free from ourselves and from our blinding sin and idols and to avoid the just wrath of God, what's impossible for us to do is possible with God. It's it's possible with God. So in in the sadness, so there's the situation, the sadness of this guy leaving, all the blown up uh, worldviews and expectations of of everyone around him, Jesus throws this grace grenade right in the, the middle of him. Because yeah, exactly guys, it is impossible for you. Bingo, we're getting it now. I mean, if I got to get you to that point of sadness and hopelessness, then we are right where we need to be because this is where God works. He just set before us the best. He set before us varsity righteous person. And he says, he's not going. He can't do it. He doesn't measure up to the goodness and standards of God. What hope do we have then, Jesus? Perfect. Because it's something that God does. Only God can set us free. Only God can expose and show our idolatry. Only God can awaken our hearts to our great need. Only God can change our hearts and give us a new heart toward eternal joys and and great desires for for Him rather than our own destructive idols and, and things. And and God does not save us through our own doing. He does not save us through our own good and morality. But it's only through Christ. It's only through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, who has come as the Messiah. It's only by grace. Salvation is only a work of God. It is only a work of God. And this truth is just all over the Bible. That you can't do it, but God can. Israel, you can't get out of Egypt, but watch me. And I'm just going to flex a little bit and and take the most powerful country in the world. I'm going to put them on their knees where they're begging you to leave. Abraham, you're going to have a kid. God, we can't do it. Oh, yeah? I can. It's all over the Bible. 
Man's dead. Man walks in, in wickedness. But God, being rich in mercy, he sent his son. John chapter 1, he says this in, very, in the uh, opening dialogue there. He says, but to all who did receive him, those who did get eternal life, those who are saved, all who believed in his name, who have faith in Christ. What does it say? It says, he God, he, he gave the right to become children of God, meaning God doing it, did it. We were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, of, of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Only by God. Impossible salvation is only possible through the grace of God in Christ alone. And there's the answer to the man's question. And maybe you're asking that question this morning. How do I get saved? Through the grace of God. Come as a tax collector and cling to the mercy of God, a sinner. It's not only that God, that this is possible with God, but God is willing and does. We are, we are a testimony of that. That God does save. We need the grace of God. And we need to count everything else as rubbish. And foolishness. And look to Christ's perfect righteousness. Because only he has fulfilled the law. And has made atonement before God. For our forgiveness. So that's impossible salvation. But it continues with the with impossible sacrifice. You see, when so many look at Christianity, or maybe you've been sharing the gospel with so many, you might have heard this dilemma. Some people look at Christianity, and all they see with Christianity are the things that they have to lose. They, they think about all the things that they have to give up. And, and if they put it on a scale to them, their scale... It says that it's too much, that it's too hard, that it's impossible to do. But what Jesus is showing us is that, that he is worthy of anything that we have to lay down. You see, what Jesus does in this whole passage is, is Jesus is like a surgeon. Jesus is like a, a surgeon. He precisely attacks the idolatrous cancer in the young man. He goes right at the heart. He doesn't use a blunt object. He goes right at it. That's why we have to really unpack all these things, what Jesus says, or we'll quickly go into error. Jesus is like a surgeon. He goes right to the root of sin. And, and if we have surgery, if we have to have surgery... We, we all, we want the best doctors and we want the best tools to be at his disposal and be at the, the best hospitals. Because anything less than that, every one of us would say, take us to Savannah. That was a joke. You can laugh. Here is a man who's gripped in idolatry. He loves his stuff. He loves his money. He loves his prestige. He's in turmoil over it comes to Jesus, and he asks the question, and he does not get what he wanted to hear. Nobody wants to hear, we have to do surgery. And that's what Jesus does. And he leaves sad. 
Jesus offering, I mean, just a feast of the gospel and grace. I mean, he looks at the face of God and walks away. And Peter speaks later, I think it's verse 28, he, he says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, it sounds like pride, and we're kind of like, ah, Peter, don't speak. Sounds like pride, but, in, but Peter, in a childlike way, is saying, Jesus, you see, we did what this guy couldn't do. We've shown that we are willing to sacrifice it all, jobs, homes, families, and friends, everything. And I love Jesus' response because it's so, it's so pastoral. It's so, you know, doctor, surgery guy, surgeon-like. He corrects and he encourages them. And he says this. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, wife, brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now here's what the good doctor is doing here. The young man walked away sad, and what was he doing? He was holding on to his stuff, sadly, walking away, holding on to his stuff and his idol. And why does he hold on to those things? Well, number one, he's enslaved to those things. And what the, the lie that he believes is the same lie that I kind of shared just a little bit earlier, that people think that what they have to give up in this world in order to, to turn to Christ and to believe in Christ would not be worth it. That it, that it wouldn't be worth it, and that, and that if they turn to God, giving up those things, that God is just going to leave them unsatisfied and unfulfilled and poor and empty. They think that it's a bad deal to give up more than what they gained, even if it was eternal life. But here's what Jesus is saying. He says, he's saying, it is impossible for you to give up more than I'm going to give you. And he's encouraging Peter. He's like, Peter, I, I know you guys have sacrificed. I know you guys have gift. But guess what? The more is here and the more is coming. It's impossible for you to sacrifice more. So, so just keep giving it. Just keep giving it. I'm giving you more. I'm going to give you more now and in eternity. And again, how many people reject Jesus because they believe a lie? They believe that lie, that they're going to lose out. And something in this world, if they don't follow Jesus, it's, it's not worth what I have to give up. God is asking too much of me. He wants me to give up all those things that I enjoy. And Jesus is telling us here, do you really think you could give up anything in this life and world that can compare to what God can give you. And if you do believe that is true, then that is not the God of the Bible. Then it's just not true. He gives us so many things. He doesn't give us necessarily the gifts of the world that might destroy us and divide us. But what does he give us? He gives us gifts now that we experience in eternity, but in the present. He gives us freedom from the slavery to sin and idols. Isn't peace of mind and peace in the soul and heart worth more than winning the lottery? He gives us membership in the family of God. 
He gives us fellowship with those people who by grace will love us and care for us and pray for us and and, and help us in those blind spots when we try to uh, falsely self-evaluate ourselves incorrectly, not according to the Word of God. And we lovingly shepherd one another, leaving all we have to follow the one who gives us everything offers more of a blessing to us now. But also in the life to come. I think for the best thing for us to do is just to stop a moment and think about what Jesus has told us here this morning. And just ask yourself, does this have anything to do with me? Do I really need to take stock of my life and what Jesus has told us here? I need to really evaluate, man, where's my confidence? Is it in the mercy of God? Is it truly only in the cross? Or am I have any confidence of my own goodness, my own morality, my own hard work, money? Are you trusting any part of those things that Jesus told this guy in the passage this morning were not enough? To trust in any of those things other than the grace of God and faith in Christ alone is to say every time that we do not need him. And that we do not need his mercy and that we do not really need his salvation because it's just us trying to earn and to put God in our debt. And if we could earn the favor of God through our behavior, through our behavioral modification, and as the Bible tells us, what is the point of the cross? What was the point? So where is our confidence? Where is your confidence? Think about that. Where is your confidence? Pray. Where is my confidence lying? And don't be too quick to answer that question either. Think about it. Pray about it. Take, take that question seriously. On this Lord's Day, on this Sabbath day, take that question seriously. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal maybe those things that we've been tempted to trust in. Ask a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Read Romans chapter 3 and maybe even the whole book of Galatians or go back to Luke chapter 18. Pray and meditate over these things again. Let's not be passerbyers of the text. Where we just get a good drive-by of, oh, that was cool. But really answer these questions that Jesus is asking us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. Oh, how we thank you that by grace, what is impossible for me to achieve, what is impossible for me to inherit or to gain has been produced by Christ, by you, by grace, that we could be saved. Oh, Heavenly Father, let us rest in these things, the great truth of by grace we have been saved and not of what we have done, but what
what Christ has done. Lord, if we come this morning in the turmoil like the rich young ruler, let us have grace this morning. Let us find peace in those truths this morning. Help us as we wade through these things, and even in our response time, may it be helpful for all of us. And may we be encouraged in Christ's name. Amen.